Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 156, The Battle of Congella. When we left off last episode, Captain Thomas Smith and two companies of the 27th Inner Skilling Regiment, an 18-pounder that had just arrived by ship, two six-pounder field guns, a small section of the Royal Artillery, a handful of Royal Engineers, sappers and miners, along with a company of Cape Mounted Rifles, had formed their lager at a level area to the north of Durban CBD of today, where the old fort can be seen. The 27th Inniskilling were an Irish infantry regiment of the British Army formed in 1689, so they had been around the block. Boer commander Andres Pretorius had called his men to where he had set up camp at Congella, and by the time this battle commenced, there'd be more than 200 ready to face Smith's professional soldiers. The British were hopelessly optimistic in their plans, as you're going to hear. Some of the English traders left at Port Natal, Henry Ogle, for example, warned Captain Smith that his force was somewhat underwhelming and that the Boers were not to be taken lightly. Smith, unfortunately, had no choice but to try and impose himself. He had marched to Durban from Umgazi, and the last orders he had received from Cape Governor Sir George Napier was to secure the bay for the British Empire. I've already explained that back in England, the Secretary for War in the Colonies, Lord Stanley, had actually changed his mind and ordered Smith back to base, but this letter was going to arrive woefully too late. Smith himself had arrived at the bay on the 4th of May, and fruitless negotiations had continued until the 15th of May. Pretorius knew that a fight was in the offing, so he conducted a straw poll amongst his men. He'd asked those at the Congella Lager if they wanted to become British subjects, and all shouted, Nya! Some said, the British must pay for what they have done. One said, Send Captain Smith and his men back to the Cape. We will take their flag and their guns. An ominous and quite accurate forecast, as you're going to hear. Pretorius sent a note to the Volksrat in Maritzburg saying that the Boers wanted to fight the British tooth and nail and was instructed by the Rat to order Captain Smith to leave Durban with all his troops by midday on the 18th of May. Pretorius duly sent this note to Smith. The British officer's reply was addressed to Meneer Pretorius, and the Boer leader had a cadenza. He was a commandant, and duly sent the letter back, saying no one was sure for whom this was addressed. Smith scratched out Meneer and changed the title to Commandant of Natal, and pointed out that his orders were to remain in Durban until the Boers had left for their farms. Smith promised he'd leave them alone. If they went, they were free to go. The Volksrat acknowledged now that war was inevitable, but tried one more time to find a peaceful solution by softening the ultimatum. They said Smith and his men could stay, but the Boers would also stay at the Lager and Congella. Both sides could live in some kind of dual harmony. Smith refused to receive the latest missive and prepared for the final showdown. The Volksrad had now had enough of this idle diplomatic chit-chat and on the 19th of May instructed Pretorius to chase the British into the sea. South Africa's favourite political curse is to threaten to chase someone into the sea. The Boers, at the same time, did not want to appear to be the aggressors, so Pretorius planned to raid the 600 British cattle grazing between the two camps. The cattle rustling exercise would force Smith to act, he'd have to protect his honour. On the morning of the 23rd of May, 1842, Pretorius ordered 150 of his men to hide in the thick coastal bush 
near where the cattle were grazing. Then he sent Stephanus Maritz to warn Smith that he should leave immediately, or he'd be blamed for the coming bloodshed. Smith just ignored Maritz, who then cantered back to Congella with the latest news of diplomatic rejection. Shortly afterwards, the 150 Boers emerged from their hiding place and began driving the cattle to Congella after chasing off the herders. An alarm was sounded in the British camp and Smith hurried out, ordering the heavy 18-pounder to open fire on the Boers. Ten shells were fired from this fearsome weapon, killing two oxen but completely missing the foot-trekkers. That was a rather embarrassing start to the coming battle, emblematic even. Captain Smith ordered two companies of 100 men under Captain Lonsdale to recover the cattle, but the Boers had already left the area, not a cow could be seen. The Boers fired a few warning shots at the British troops from the bushes as they emerged from their fort. Smith then ordered his bugler to sound the retreat. He was extremely nervous about his men being ambushed. Things were accelerating quickly, as they tend to do in war. Pretorius broke his men into platoons of 10 and 20, ordering them to take up positions in the bushes between the two camps and to await the inevitable British assault. Unlike their experience with the Amazulu, the Boers were fully aware that the British could carry out military manoeuvres under the cover of darkness, and this is what they did. At 11pm, Captain Smith sallied forth from his camp with 109 men of the 27th Inniskilling, 18 men of the Royal Artillery, 8 engineers, and 2 Cape Mountain Rifle horsemen. They were marching to Congella. This is another of those moments. Congella is an anglicised version of the Amazulu barracks that used to be found here called the Kwa Kangela. Shaka had established it so that his commanders could keep a watchful eye on the first British traders of Port Natal in the early 1820s. Its full name was actually Kwa Kangela Ama Nkengani, which means the place of watching over vagabonds. The vagabonds in this case were the British being watched from the former Amazulu redoubt by the Boers. A little twist of history for you. And those who know Durban, the Congella Lager position is quite close to where Maiden Wharf is today. Captain Smith was aware of the Boer capacity to fight in bush, so he ordered his men to march along the beachfront. A stunning full moon was shining, causing the waves to fluoresce. Anyone who's marched on a beach knows it's quite difficult, made worse by the horses and of course dragging their three guns along, while they were obviously now clearly visible to anyone lurking in the bushes on the dunes. It was low tide, so the going was good at first, as the hard sand made things a little easier. The British also deployed a howitzer on a longboat from the Mazeppa, the ship, which is how folks made difficult trips between ships at Anchor and Durban Bay and across the dangerous sandbar to the beach. Smith was hoping that the longboat could row to the beach at high tide to offload the howitzer, but that was seven hours away. There were a lot of what-ifs that dogged Smith's plan, as you can see. The British advanced quietly as they headed south down the beach towards the point, along where Addington Beach is today, watched by 25 Boer marksmen hiding in the thick bush at the top of the dunes. Pretorius was told that his enemy was on the move, and he ordered his women and children out of the lager into the thick bushland above the harbour, up into the Berea, near Glenwood. Pretorius had also given strict orders that no boer should open fire until the British troops were within 100 metres of their camp. The burghers waited patiently until at Pretorius's command five shots rang out. An ox at each of the three gun carriages was shot dead by the sharpshooters, only a few metres away in the bush. 
That wasn't all. Lieutenant Wyatt and a private of the Inniskilling Regiment were both shot in the head and killed instantly. Pandemonium broke out in the British ranks. The surviving oxen panicked, but were now dragging the gun and the dead ox with them, while the cannon were actually pointed away from the Boer lager, so they couldn't even be brought to bear and fired. The British in their red coats dived into the sand, firing back into the darkness. The soldiers were caught in the full moonlight, which back in those days of zero light pollution was like a flare in the sky. The British were in big trouble. The Mazeppa's longboat carrying the howitzer was also being dragged away by a strong current and heading in the wrong direction. Soldiers on board managed to fire one shot towards Congella before they disappeared into the night. The shell fell woefully short, almost hitting the redcoats. That caused even more confusion in the ranks of the Inniskilling and the Oxen, and three minutes later Captain Smith's buglers called a general retreat. The tide was beginning to turn, the actual tide, and the British soldiers and oxen panicked still more as the water lapped closer. Captain Smith on his horse swung hither and thither trying to maintain order, but it was hopeless. The Boers picked off the British soldiers in the moonlight at their discretion. The redcoats began running towards the point, into the waves there. Others slipped and slid in the mangroves. Some threw their muskets away and dropped their ammunition pouches, their belts. They kicked off their boots. A few ran headlong into the Indian Ocean and were swept off their feet by the famous Durban Beach front waves and drowned, their heavy red coats and trousers dragging them down to Davy Jones's locker. It was 2 a.m. when Captain Smith finally made it back to his fort, only to discover that Pretorius had sent a company of his men to surround this position to stop reinforcements. Soon, however, the Boers were called back to Congella by Pretorius. Smith and his men hunkered down in their garrison, winded and wounded. After the retreat, the Boers witnessed a scene of utter devastation on Durban Beach, washed by the Indian Ocean, the light of the full moon and the blood of the soldiers. Seventeen bodies of the British dead lay about the beach. Some had drowned, most were shot. There were many wounded redcoats moaning on the sand, alongside two abandoned cannon dozens of discarded muskets and hundreds of rounds in pouch belts. Not one Boer was killed or wounded in this Battle of Congella, a foretaste of what was going to happen in the many wars that you're going to hear between the Brits and the Boers. However, it wasn't all plain sailing for the Trekkers. The English traders had learnt a thing or two about fighting the African way and hatched their own plan, setting themselves up in the bush overlooking the British camp they planned a little surprise for the Boers. Meanwhile, at Congella, Pretorius gathered his victorious men together and said a prayer. The majority wanted to return to the garrison and finish Smith off. Pretorius allowed himself to be swayed and decided to press home their advantage. So the Boers crept back towards the British garrison, arriving at 3.30am, and Pretorius ordered an attack from the north, the west and the south. The eastern side, of course, was too close to the ocean. He was in for a bit of a shock. The British traders hiding in the ambush positions were being led by George Cato. And if you remember, Cato had been at the receiving end of the Boers earlier in the year and was itching for retribution. These English traders were also extremely accurate shots. And now the Boers were sandwiched between the British forces. And lo, Cato would be satisfied, for the British traders did in fact open fire with the elephant guns 
immediately wounding four boers, including a 15-year-old son of one of the trekkers who had tagged along for the sport. It was now Pretorius's turn to order a retreat. They had only managed to wound three British soldiers in the second confrontation, and it was apparent that Smith had built a formidable defensive position. Pretorius needed reinforcements and sent word to Peter Maritzburg for help. Buying time, he sent a message to Captain Smith saying he was willing to hand over the British dead and wounded. Smith accepted the offer. He needed to buy time himself, and several wagons were sent to Smith's camp carrying their cargo of carrion. Smith then asked Pretorius if it would be okay for the British to fire a volley of salute for their fallen comrades, to which Pretorius agreed, on condition the volley did not include cannon. All very civilised. But Captain Smith was in shock. He'd been utterly humiliated. He had marched into Durban, puffed up and ruddy-faced with Britain's best, a regiment with a tradition of enforcing the Empire's power. Now they had been vanquished. They were surrounded by Boers. The British commander sat at his camp desk and wrote out a famous dispatch for the eyes of Lieutenant Colonel Hare, the deputy governor back in Grahamstown. Documents sealed, he cast around for someone to rush the dispatch to the Eastern Cape and asked George Cato to recommend a likely horseman. Cato said he'd deliver the document himself, but Smith refused, saying Cato was too valuable. He knew the landscape around Durban too well. And so all eyes settled on Richard King, the farmer from Isipingo who we met in an earlier episode. King was an oddity, all right. He'd fought with the Boers against the Amazulu two years earlier at Blokrans and Bushman's River, when Dingana's men had caught them so catastrophically. Now he was earmarked to try to evade the Boers and to ride like the wind to Grahamstown, a distance of nearly 1,000 kilometres in those days because there was no road. At midnight on the 24th of May, 1842, Richard aka Dick King, and an Amazulu servant called Indongeni mounted their horses and were towed across the bay past Salisbury Island by George and Christopher Cato. They managed to make landfall below the bluff, where the horsemen emerged unseen by the Boer lookouts back at Congella. And with that, they were on their way for what was to become known as an epic ten-day ride from Durban to Grahamstown. In King's saddlebag was Smith's dispatch which makes for desperate reading. 34 British troops had been killed at the Battle of Congella, 63 wounded, 6 were missing, presumed drowned. Of the zealous services of Captain Lonsdale and Lieutenant Tunnard of the 27th Regiment, I was also deprived, wrote Smith, both these officers being severely wounded. He continued, the loss on the part of the Boers, it is difficult to estimate, but I am told it has been severe. Well, that was hopelessly inaccurate, as we know. What steps the farmers may subsequently take, I cannot at this moment surmise, wrote Captain Smith. I beg to urge the necessity of a speedy reinforcement, as I scarcely consider the troops at present stationed here sufficient for the performance of the duty to which they have been assigned. We'll hear about Dick and Ndungeni's epic ride next episode. On the 25th of May, the British carried out the melancholy task of burying their dead and attending to the 63 wounded. Smith had sent a small unit to protect the store at the point, which was now cut off, and these few faced more than a 100 Boers. The Redcoats, at the store on the point, saw the Boers coming on the 26th of May and opened fire with the 18-pounder cannon before retreating into the building as the trekkers peppered them with musket fire. 
After a few desultory potshots out of the window, 19 redcoats surrendered, along with three civilians in the store. Charles Adams, who owned the store, had been shot dead during the exchange. Two redcoats wounded. The Boers seized an 18-pounder cannon to join their two six-pounders they had seized from the British, as well as gunpowder, ammunition and food that took the 19 redcoats as prisoners of war. Now that they had the point under their control, they could keep an eye on all the shipping in Durban Harbour. The two ships which were anchored in the bay were the Mazeppa and the Pilot, and nine British settlers were huddled on board these two boats. Also on board was poor Reverend Archbell and his family caught in the middle of a war. So the Boers trained the guns on the two ships and ordered everyone ashore. One of the men who stepped ashore was George Cato, hated by the trekkers. A couple of the Boers demanded he be shot in cold blood on the spot. But Pretorius was acutely aware of the laws around this sort of thing and had Cato arrested and held for eight days. Then he was dragged behind a horse to Peter Marisburg to await his fate. Other English civilians were also taken into custody. Benningfield, Henry Ogle, Tuhi, Douglas, Armstrong, Hogg, McCabe, all joined Cato in a Maritzburg jail. It was actions like this that was to harden attitudes between the English-speaking Italians and the Afrikaners for generations to come. The Boers climbed aboard the Mazeppa and the pilot and ransacked the two ships. Captain Smith and the surviving men of the 27th Inniskilling were now besieged. Pretoria sent a message to Smith suggesting the British could embark on the Mazeppa and the pilot and just sail away. Smith said he'd think about it. Please give him until the 31st to decide. To which Pretorius agreed. Both were buying time. What the Trekkers did not know at this point was that Richard, Akaa, Dick King and Ndongeni were already more than 200 kilometers away, heading towards Gramstown. As the days drifted past, Smith ordered all surviving horses to be shot and the meat turned into Biltong. He was going to play the long game. On the 31st of May, Pretorius became suspicious. How come not a peep out of Smith? Surely by now he'd be groveling and putting plans in motion to climb aboard his ships. What was going on? The Boers had also not been idle during this period. They'd used the black residents of Port Natal to dig a trench along the periphery of the British position, almost a kilometre long, a metre deep, half a metre wide, sandbags placed on the edge facing Smith's garrison. That was ample cover for what was going to happen next. Pretorius had ordered the captured cannon, including the fearsome 18-pounder and the two six-pounders, to be trained on the British camp, and these began a fusillade of fire, while the Boer snipers made sure the soldiers kept their heads down. Thus began what would turn into a 26-day siege. Pretorius had allowed the women and children in the camp to be evacuated to the Mazeppa, including George Cato's wife. Five days later in early June, the Boers began running out of cannonballs, so they chopped up the Mazeppa's anchor chain and melted it down, producing an armament that was almost a new form of ammunition, a lead cannonball with an iron centre. On the 10th of June, the Boers at the point sounded the alarm. The Mazeppa appeared to be sailing out of the harbour, heading out to sea. The civilians on board were making a run for it, using a strong southwesterly which could push the ship across the sandbar and out to sea. Unfortunately, that meant sailing right past the point, which of course was being held by the Boers. As the ship approached the sandbar, the wind dropped, 
and the ship's sails flailed. The Boers opened fire. The ship was only 30 metres away from them, the musket balls ripping through the sails and the rigging. And the four-pound cannon was brought to bear and blasted away at the ship as well. Somehow, the civilians on board survived this onslaught. None of the Boers could swim, or they'd have swum out and dragged the ship back. Instead, the landlubber footrekkers stood on the beach, blazing away with their weapons. Then the southwesterly began to blow once more. The Mazeppa made it out of the bay, picked up speed, and was last seen sailing northeasterly towards Delagoa Bay and safety. While all of this was going on, Dick and Undungeni had made it to Grahamstown. And now the cavalry was coming, and not a moment too soon. That's because the conditions at Captain Smith's fort in Durban were going to go from bad to atrocious. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on your favorite platform. It helps elevate the visibility. You can head off to desmondlatham.blog, where I'm going to load an update about this episode. You can also contact me from there. Until next, bon voyage. Thank you.